0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit Ellerslie.com. So 1 Corinthians 3.14 says, If anyone's work which he has built endures, he will receive a reward. And that's the theme of the message today. I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail to get back to this verse. But this past week, I was studying a small piece of World War II history. And World War II is not something I've ever spent a lot of time on until Eric started all these series, and it kind of drew me into the history, which is very fascinating. But I studied about a group of women, uh, American women pilots, who were very instrumental to America's success during World War II. And the reason I began to study about these women was because I was reading a biography about Betty Green, who was one of the founders of Mission Aviation Fellowship in the 1940s. So we have a picture of her. She developed a passion for flying as a young girl and of course she's growing up in like the 30s and 40s during a time when women pilots were very rare it was almost unheard of but as a teenager she took flying lessons and flew a solo flight she was a strong Christian, so one day in her teen years, a trusted older friend suggested that she use her flying work for Christian mission work. And this was a time frame when it was very hard to get help and supplies to missionaries who were in remote parts of the world. A lot of times missionaries would have to hack their way for days through jungles, because they didn't have planes to go in and out of those areas. So the idea of Mission Aviation Fellowship was planted in Betty Green's heart even when she was a teenager. And her quote was, her heart leaped for joy at the thrilling thought of combining flying with her love for God. So just think about, you know, someone with a passion for doing something that is not common, not normal, not very accepted in that time, and already beginning to form a vision of using that unusual desire for the glory of God one of the ways that God prepared her to use her flying for his glory was by leading her to join the Women Air Force Service Pilots Program, which became known as the WASP. And that was at the beginning of World War II. So years before she ever flew for Mission Aviation Fellowship, she served her country as a pilot during the war. So as I began to read about her experience flying during the war, kind of as a precursor to her Mission Aviation Fellowship role, The history of the WASP program really started to fascinate me, so I took a rabbit trail to learn more about them, and I felt like as I was studying them, I really gleaned some really important spiritual reminders that were very refreshing to my soul, and I want to share some of that with you today. So going to just give you kind of a foundation for those of you who aren't familiar with this part of World War II history. And these are just excerpts from a, a documentary called uh, "Silver Wings, Flying Dreams." So, if you want to read the whole or watch the whole story, that's available, I think, on Amazon. But that documentary shows a detailed history of the Women Air Force Service Pilots. So, what I'm going to be reading to you here in this next little section are just excerpts from that documentary, just to give you an overview. So, Pearl Harbor, as we all we all know, kind of sparks the Americans entering the war, and right around that time, after After the attack on Pearl Harbor, enemy aircraft just dominated the skies in both Europe and the Pacific. And so, American male pilots were being deployed overseas for combat duty, and that created a really critical shortage of pilots in the states. So with the production of military aircraft more than doubling after Pearl Harbor, the armed forces needed pilots to test and ferry new planes to the departure points. So in the 1940s, women piloting United States military aircraft was totally unheard of. It was very unusual. Never had happened before. But the shortages of pilots to test and ferry these military aircraft within the United States forced the military to consider training women to pilot military aircraft. So in 1942, a man named General Hap Arnold, he was the commanding general of the US Army Air Forces. He authorized a women's pilot training program for the military. In 1943, they were officially formed into the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP. Which I think WASP is a really unromantic name, but that's what they were called. And this picture is interesting to me. I feel like any picture taken in the 1940s just has this like amazing intrigue to it. It's like, I was thinking about today, was it the photography or just the clothing style? It always fascinates me. When I look at pictures of my grandparents who grew up in this time, I feel the same way. It's like, these pictures are amazing. And they all have such intrigue and personality to them. So here are some of the first uh, WASP pilots. And over only 1,800 women or so were chosen out of 25,000 who applied for this program. And of those 1,800, only just over 1,000 made it through the whole training program. It was very grueling. It was very rigorous, just like any army military training. And these women lived in constant fear of what they called washing out, which meant being eliminated from the program. So here's another picture. And this is, there's so many great video, there's so many clips of great video of these women like doing like pull-ups and doing like these army you know calisthenic exercises and like sleeping in army barracks. It's pretty intriguing. I don't have a lot of those pictures here, but what a lot of people don't realize or didn't realize about these pilots, these women, is that they were all volunteers. They were brave civilians. They were willing to perform very unique military jobs to contribute to the war effort. And General Hap Arnold, who was the commander of the armed forces said, we could not have won the war without them, which is a pretty major statement. Avenger Field in Sweetwater, Texas became the first women-only military flying school in the world. One of the wasps said it was a very exciting time. We were all there for one purpose, and that was the love of flying and the desire to serve our country. So the training was very intense like any other Army boot camp. They had training and marching and drills and intense physical exercise from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. They were issued men's coveralls and all men's gear because there had never been women in the Army Air Corps before. So here's a picture of of the the clothing that they had to wear. Even though these women had extensive flying experience, they had to follow strict military regulations and prove themselves every step of the way. So one of the women said it was exactly like the training given to the men, except the men didn't have to have a pilot's license or have any flying experience. Most men were just out of high school or maybe a year or two into college. For these women, the standards were much higher because the program was experimental. They didn't know if women could handle military life or handle military aircraft. And the WASP were promised that if the program became a success, they would be taken into the Army Air Corps. One woman said the pressure was intense. We all wanted to exceed. Nobody wanted to wash out. It was very nerve-wracking because we never knew who was going to be next. Hopefully it wasn't going to be you. So that's just fascinating to me that these women were eager to be to put themselves in that situation. And the services that they were asked to perform, which was testing military aircraft, were often very dangerous. But these were brave women, and they exceeded expectations, and they they just wanted the right to fly for their country. They took their job very seriously, whether to, if they were assigned to ferry aircraft or even tow targets for anti-aircraft practice, or even test questionable planes. And it talked about in this documentary how they, in their, part of their training, they had to fly with like a cover over their visuals, so they had to completely fly these, pl- these big military Military plays just with instruments not, not be able to see anything now i can't this is something i can't relate to personally i we have this house over here that's in progress and there's this kind of like catwalk from one level to the next and there's no railings up yet, at least last time I was over there. I can't even walk across it. Like I get dizzy. It's just like, whoa, I can't do this. So the idea of flying a military aircraft way up there with no visuals and just on instruments, that it just baffles me that they were eager and willing to do this. So for two years, from 1942 to 1944, the WASP played a vital role in helping win the war. And they shattered the idea that women had no place in the cockpit of a military plane. The WASP flew 60,000 miles in every type of Army Air Forces aircraft and in every type of non-combat mission. And their safety record exceeded that of male pilots doing the same jobs, not because they were better than the men, but probably because they were eager to prove themselves. They were so excited for the opportunity at that time. And one of the more dangerous assignments was pulling aircraft for live anti-aircraft practice. So they would tow a target behind their plane, and the soldiers would practice shooting at the targets that they were pulling behind their plane. Most of the soldiers, though, because it was wartime and they were very short on soldiers. Most of them were young boys just out of high school, some who had never fired these weapons before. So it was always the risk that they were going to shoot the plane instead of the target, and yet you you see these women being interviewed that that did this, you know, all those years ago, and they're like, oh, it was very dangerous, but we loved it. It was amazing. We just, just to be up in the air, you know, just to be part of what was going on, they just ca- counted it a privilege. So all in all, the WASP ferried over 12,000 military aircraft between 1942 and 1944, which was actually about 50% 50% of all aircraft manufactured in the United States during the war. One of the WASP pilots said they'd hand you a report about a plane, and you'd sit at home and read it the night before, and the next day you just had to get in and fly it. So a lot of times they never even got practice with these planes. They just got the report, like, here's the kind of plane, read up on it, and then the next day they just got in and flew it. Some of them were chosen for top-secret missions, one that required them to develop drones to crash them into enemy rocket launch sites. This was the time when Hitler was was hitting England a lot. And so the American uh, Air Force was trying to hit those rocket launch sites. And so these women were in charge of taking down the rocket launch sites. Uh, One of them said, I had five other females in my bay and we were all very close. I think you get very close because you don't know if you're going to be alive the next day. You'll hear that a lot from people who went through a war together or something. They they don't know if they're gonna be alive from one day to the next. You also hear that from those who suffered in concentration camps. They get very close sharing that kind of life or death experience. One of the most dangerous assignments that they had involved the B-29 Superfortress plane. So test pilots were often killed in this plane trying to fly the prototype of it, and so they were refusing, these pilots were men, were refusing to fly this aircraft. It was considered so dangerous that it became known as the Widowmaker. Here's a picture of the plane. So I don't know how you would feel, but here you have these male pilots who've, so many of them have died trying to test this plane. It's got a reputation as being the Widowmaker, and these men are refusing to fly it. So General Hap Arnold ordered Paul Tibbetts, who was the one who piloted the B-29 that dropped bombs on Hiroshima, to train several of the WASP to fly this aircraft. They flew it around to combat bases where male pilots were returning with the B-17 and the B-24 bombers in Europe and they were now stationed there. After watching the women fly the, the military's largest bomber, the men stopped complaining. They realized, okay, these ladies can do it, we can do it. Over the course of the war, 38 Wasp pilots lost their lives in service to their country for the war effort. But because they were women and they were part of this experimental program, they weren't really treated the same as male military personnel who gave their lives in the service um, in, in the service of the war. So one Wasp explained about how she lost her best friend when they when she collided with another plane in um in a testing situation. She said, that was my first experience with death. They wanted me to take her belongings home, but I just couldn't. I said, can you get someone else who didn't know her so well? We all pitched in some money for her burial and to send her home to her parents. She never got a burial flag or anything, nothing in those days, which is very sad. But that was kind of the, the tone, the culture that they were in. So after a couple of years, the Allies began to critically weaken the Nazi and the Japanese forces air forces and more American pilots were surviving the war and coming home to the United States and as they came back and they saw women in roles like being flight instructors and non-combat pilots, they decided, okay, wait, those are supposed to be our jobs. So General Hap Arnold, he was the one who started the WASP program in the beginning, he, he sought for military status for these women pilots, but there were so many complaints by these male flight instructors, these male pilots who felt like the women had kind of taken over their jobs, that caught the ears of Congress and then And this this nasty anti-wasp campaign was the result. So here's what some of the wasps said about it. It was just terrible. The men made fun of us and belittled us and didn't like us. The women should stay at home in the kitchen, they said. Another one said, well, the media depicted us as flighty women, which I thought that was a funny choice of words, flighty women, like silly women, I guess, or like, you know, not smart, uh, doing this glamorous job, and it was a waste of public money. What would women do with all that flight training? They just said all kinds of horrible things about us. I couldn't believe people would actually listen to them, but they did, and it caused a lot of problems. So there were two generals that wanted the WASP to be made part of the Army Air Forces, uh, but Congress opposed it because of all this backlash. In June of 1944, the House Committee on the Civil Service delivered the WASP a crippling blow. They considered the WASP unnecessary and unjustifiably expensive, and they recommended that the recruiting and training of all women pilots end. So after these women proved that they could handle the latest fighters and the heaviest bombers, it all came to an abrupt end. On December 20th, 1944, they were quietly and unceremoniously disbanded. There were no honors, no veterans benefits, and very few thank yous. Here's how one of the women described it. We sat around in a big circle on the flight line when we were told that the wasp had been deactivated. There wasn't a word that was said among us, and there wasn't a dry eye among us. I can't remember how long we sat there. And then we just simply got up and went back to our barracks. Another one said, we could not believe that we had flown every single airplane the Air Force had. We'd done everything the men had done, and yet they were going to get rid of us. Another said, it was a crushing blow when we found out we were going to be disbanded. Another said, I don't think, at least for myself, that I ever completely recovered from it. I went on with my life, but it was sort of like finding out that a dream can be achieved and taken away just as easily. And another one said, two of the squadrons, including mine, sent a letter to the president offering our services for $1 per year for as long as the need existed, but it was turned down. They said, no, we've made up our minds. Oh, that was a sad ending. So losing their military flying status forced them back into civilian life, and they were not appreciated, they were not recognized for their service. A lot of them applied for pilots' jobs, but even with their advanced flight training and their extensive experience, the airlines refused to hire female pilots. They offered them jobs as stewardesses or ground control, and they found themselves grounded, their dream of continuing as military pilots shattered. One wasp said, we were devastated that we were just let go with a goodbye because we had none of the benefits that the other women in the service got. All kinds of benefits, college, medical, everything. We got absolutely nothing. As the end of the war was celebrated, the wasps quietly went on with their lives, raising families, entering careers, their contributions to the war never officially recognized. Pretty sad ending to such an exciting two years where they were very brave and they were very sacrificial in service to their country. I can't help as I kind of process this story I couldn't help but compare the sacrifice and service of these women pilots to the sacrifice and service we are called to as Christians. Now, thankfully, we are not all called to pilot aircraft because that would not be me. I would, (laughs) I mean, without like this supernatural heaven-born miracle, I would never want to even attempt anything like that. But in the Christian life, we are called to be brave, be bold, be sacrificial. And a lot of times we start out in our Christian calling with joy and energy and enthusiasm. If you think about when you first came to Christ and you first caught the vision that God wanted you to be a light that would shine in this dark world, there's this excitement, there's there's passion, this energy to share the gospel, to be an example of Christ and to live for Christ fully. And maybe some of us even gave up earthly opportunities, things that could have made us a lot of money or kind of elevated our status in this world because we wanted to follow the narrow way of the cross. And a lot of us made sacrifices to do that or still are making those sacrifices. But some point along the way, usually for most of us, the enemy baits us with discouragement and that temptation to grow weary in the work that we're doing or just in living a bold Christian life in the midst of a dark generation. Our work for Christ, just like the women pilots in World War II, is not always recognized or appreciated. And sometimes we're even belittled and disdained for it, just like they were. They, they had given so much to serve their country, and then they were belittled for it. And I've found myself in those situations where I've poured out for someone, I've prayed for someone, I've sacrificed for someone in order to win them to Christ, and I've just been disdained and belittled for it. And it can feel very futile. Uh, Sometimes we are overlooked, we're disregarded, and that's when weariness and discouragement, at least for me, baits me the most. Maybe you can relate to this. Just like these women after the war, it it can be easy to start feeling like our labor, living for Christ, living set apart from this world, is just in vain. There was a time for Eric and I when, it was a few years before Ellerslie started, we had been touring and we felt, we had been touring for about 10 years or more and speaking and speaking to large crowds and writing books and having tremendous success in reaching the younger generation with that message that we felt God had given us to share. But then we felt like God was calling us to pull back from touring and pull back from that constant lifestyle of go, 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 and to really hone in on discipleship. And this was before we had the campus. We didn't really have a way of Discipling. But it was hard for us to go into a city and do a big event and get everybody all excited about this truth and see this amazing response to this message, but then have to leave a day or two later and not know if those seeds that were ever, that were planted were going to be watered. A lot of times we were going into areas where the churches were very weak. There wasn't a lot of strong Christian leadership. And so we thought we're planting seeds, but who's going to water those seeds? We, we want to go deeper with those that we're called to reach. And so as kind of an experiment, we were, we were kind of pulling back from a lot of touring. We were still touring, but less because we wanted to develop a discipleship curriculum where we could take people deeper with Christ and give them a stronger foundation to go the distance in victorious Christian living. And we were kind of drawing from all of our experience of, you know, 15 years in Christian ministry. Learned a lot of things the hard way, and that's really where that curriculum for Ellerslie came from. That's really where it was born. Just really writing down every spiritual lesson God had taught us that we had wrestled through in those really difficult years of, of ministry. And I'll probably, for those of you who are here at the Five Week, I'll share more about that as this as this time goes forward. You'll hear more about that story. But we were in a a season where we only had a really small group of people, and they were just coming to our house once a week for Bible study and kind of like a spiritual exhortation time. And we were kind of like testing the prototype of Ellerslie, Ellerslie Messages, out on this small group that really seemed hungry for discipleship. But... They really didn't respond very well. For the most part, they were just kind of like, this is too extreme. This is too radical. This costs too much to follow Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so one by one, they kind of just began to peel off where there was just one or two people left who actually seemed passionate about these truths. And it all felt in vain. You know, all of these rich spiritual truths that we feel called to pass on to eager Christian men and women it just felt like it was falling flat and all of this effort and thought and time and prayer and study and energy that had gone into these messages just felt like a waste and maybe that's a maybe that's something you could re- relate to in your own life in a different way maybe you are a godly parent or a teacher or a someone who works with children and you're seeking to point those children to Christ without a lot of success right away. You're not seeing the fruit of it. Maybe you're a pastor, you're a missionary, you're in Christian leadership, and you're seeking to make an eternal impact on those God has entrusted to you, but maybe the response is minimal. Maybe you're someone who's seeking to be a witness for Christ in your workplace, in your extended family, but you're just being met with bitterness or scorn or resentment or just kind of a you know, it's falling on deaf ears. Maybe you've, seen, you've sown seeds for the gospel that never really seemed to take root. Maybe you've even given up opportunities, like I said earlier, great opportunities that the world could offer you in order to invest into eternal, internal things, only to feel like you're not really making that much of a difference. There have been times when I have related to the verse in Isaiah 49 4. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. I've had that feeling a few times throughout my Christian life, and discouragement wants to set in, and it feels like it's not making a difference, and it feels like a waste of all my time and energy and prayer. But there's a key truth that we so often overlook whenever we're tempted to feel like our labor is in vain, that it didn't make a difference, that it will never be recognized as anything valuable. And that key truth is that this is not the end of our story, because this world is not our home. So many of us look around at whatever circumstances are in our life right now when we think that's the end of our story. And we make all of our thoughts and our decisions based on the fact that, hey, this isn't fair. Why would God allow this? This is discouraging and frustrating. And we forget that this is not the end of our story. And we forget that this world is not our home. A number of years ago, I read a short story, a true story, about a missionary couple returning home from the field after many years of service. And they struggled with the same thing. And here's the story. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa for years. They were returning to New York City to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. They discovered that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. No one paid much attention to them. They watched the fanfare that accompanied the president's entourage, with passengers trying to catch a glimpse of that great man. As the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to God in Africa all these many years and we have no one care a thing about us? Here comes this man back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. Dear, you shouldn't feel that way, his wife said. I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to meet the president. greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were there. The papers were full of the president's arrival, but nobody noticed this missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. That night, the man's spirit broke. He said to his wife, "'I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly.' His wife replied, "'Why don't you go into the bedroom and tell that to the Lord?' A short time later, he came out from the bedroom, but now his face was completely different. His wife asked, dear, what happened? The Lord settled it with me, he said. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. What a great story. And so important for us to remember, we are not home yet. And when we finally do go home, there is a reward that awaits us. No matter how overlooked or underappreciated we may feel in our journey here, we have a reward awaiting us when we are in Christ. And it's not just any award, it's a spectacular reward. It's not a reward that comes from human applause or earthly accolades, it's something far, far better the rest of that scripture in Isaiah forty nine four says, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing, and in vain, yet just surely my just reward is with God, and my work with my God. So he's despairing over feeling like it's in vain, and then he's remembering that he has a reward. His work, his reward is with the Lord. Galatians 6:9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Psalm fifty-eight, eleven: surely there is a reward for the righteous. Matthew 5, 12, great is your reward in heaven. And Genesis 15, 1, where God says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And reward in that verse means compensa- compensation, benefit, wages, worth. All of the things that those women pilots didn't receive after their service, all of the things that missionary couple didn't receive after their service God is saying, I am your exceedingly great reward. How do we avoid growing weary while doing good? One of the main ways is to remember that this world is not our home and to remember that Jesus is our sure reward, our exceedingly great reward. Eric Little was that famous Olympic runner who won the gold medal But after he won the gold medal, if you've ever heard his story, he refused to run on Sunday because he didn't want to, he wanted to make a statement that he was a Christian first and an athlete second. And God still honored him, even though he ran a race that wasn't his specialty. He won the gold and he was a hero in his country. And then he had the opportunity to continue to be an athletic hero in his country, but he gave up all of that to become an obscure missionary in China. And before he went to China, he said these words. It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal, but since I have been a young lad, I have had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris, and this race ends when God gives out the medals. He understood that there was something so much greater that he was aiming for than just an earthly gold medal, and that's what he lived his life for. So I'd like to go back to the story of the WASP that we opened with because eventually they did receive a reward for their service in the war, but it was not without struggle and heartache. In the 1970s, there was a big announcement in all the newspapers that the Air Force had just trained the first group of women to ever fly U.S. military aircraft. Wasp Helen Wyatt Snap said that upset us a little bit because we were the first women to fly military planes So we organized after that we contacted each other and said did you see the headlines? What are we going to do about that? Another wasp said we lost 38 women were their sacrifices for nothing. We didn't want the glory We didn't want publicity We wanted our government to recognize the fact that we did our bit in a time when the country was in need They asked for help and we gave it and gave it willingly as a group, they decided to go after veteran status, which became a long uphill battle that took many years. They, they had help from Bruce Arnold, who was General Hap Arnold's son, and it was always Hap Arnold's dream to see these women recognized as veterans, so his son took up the cause. He had They had Sen- Senator Barry Goldwater, who was a big crusader for them, and many others, but there was incredible resistance to their cause. To sway public opinion, the WAFs shared their military experience with newspapers around the country. They gathered 22,000 signatures from people all around the country. They talked about how some of the women would go to the opening of Star Wars in the theaters and like, set up a table and have posters and get petitions. One One of them got 1,700 signatures in one weekend at going to the Star Wars theaters, those theaters that were showing Star Wars, and they knew where the people were going to be, so that's where they went. Uh, one of the was said they didn't want us to be accepted as veterans, they're talking about Congress, but we put together an album, and the first page in the album was a copy of one of the women's honorable discharge papers from the U.S. Air Force, and it was the same paper that the Speaker of the House had. He looked at it and he said, this is exactly like mine. These women are veterans. That was what turned the tables. Hundreds of WAS came to Washington in their uniforms to witness the vote. On November 3rd and 4th, 1977, the House and then the Senate passed legislation. And on November 23rd, without a single WASP present, President Jimmy Carter signed it into law. One WASP said, we did in 1977 what they had done to us in 1944. With our lobbying, we swayed the vote, and we were very successful to finally be recognized as veterans for World War II. But it took another 33 years before the WASP were officially recognized for their outstanding service in the Second World War. In 2009, the women of the U.S. Senate united to award the WASP for their service during the war. And in July of that year, President Obama signed the bill authorizing the WASP to receive the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor Congress can award to a civilian or a group of civilians. On March 10th, 2010, almost 70 years after the WAS served in World War II. They were finally honored by Congress. During the gold medal ceremony, hundreds of people, military officers, members of the press, and government officials rose to their feet to give the WAS a standing ovation in recognition for their sacrifice nearly 70 years before. And here's just a little picture of that day. I saw the video of it. It was very moving. A very special day, a very special moment, finally receiving honors, finally receiving a reward for their service, but it was also bittersweet and it came 70 years late. So let's stop and think about this kind of a reward compared to the reward that awaits us in eternity, those of us who are in Christ, because these women should have gotten recognized right after the war for all that they did. But it was a 70-year struggle to finally just get an earthly gold medal. And some of them were no longer even alive when they were awarded that medal. And that's a very different type of reward than the one that awaits us. So here are three facts about the heavenly reward that awaits us. First, in Christ, we have a sure reward. It's amazing to me to recognize that when we are in Christ, it is a sure thing. It's a sure reward. It can't be taken away, it can't become rusty or collect dust over the years, and it doesn't require any lobbying or petitioning to receive it. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 26, it says, They run to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The reward he is going to give us is not one of those that is going to perish or gather dust. Proverbs 11, 18, he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. This is a done deal when we are in Christ. If anyone's work which he has built endures, he will receive a reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 14. From the Lord, you will receive the reward of your inheritance. Your, in your, uh, I butchered that. From the, from the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Colossians three twenty four. So the confidence we can have that this will be worth it all when we are in the presence of Christ, is it's guaranteed. It's a sure reward. Secondly, our heavenly reward is beyond what we could hope for or imagine. A lot of us get so caught up in the struggles and the cares of this life that we forget what awaits us in eternity. Just a few little glimpses that we see in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 7:14, he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what awaits those of us who are in Christ, and it's a reward beyond what we could ever even wrap our minds around. Revelation 21:3 through 6, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all these things. Number three, Jesus himself is our ultimate reward, our exceedingly great reward. And all other rewards pale in comparison to him. In him, we have a reward, an exceedingly great reward. Being in his presence, having unhindered fellowship with him, is such an exceedingly great reward that the 24 elders continually fall down before him in heaven and cast their crowns at his feet. Any type of reward they were given, they cast them down at his feet. Because no reward or prize could ever compare with the reward that is Jesus. Revelation 4, 9-11 Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their, crown, their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. They just think, why do we need these crowns? We have We have the amazing honor, the amazing privilege of being in the presence of the king. Charles Spurgeon said, with what rapture, with what joy, with what delight do the elders cast their crowns there at Jesus' feet? It's something they just do with delight, with joy, because they're so enamored and captivated by who he is. Psalm, 30, Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth I desire besides you. And that is the right perspective for a Christian. There's nothing we desire in heaven or on earth that exceeds our desire for Jesus Christ. You see that in such a clear way in the martyrdom of Stephen as he's being stoned and mocked and everyone around him hates him so much that they don't want him to just die, but die a violent, painful, horrible death. And they are literally despising him. He doesn't care about any of that. He looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father to welcome him into eternity. And it says that his face shone like the face of an angel. He was ecstatic because he saw his reward, and it had nothing to do with how he was being treated here on this earth or what they thought of him. It had everything to do with knowing where he was going and who he was going to. Jesus is our reward, both in this life and in the life to come. As Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 8, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. He is all that we should ever desire, because if we knew who he really was, everything else would just seem worthless compared to him. In Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, it says that he esteemed the reproach, speaking of Moses, esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And when he is willing to esteem the reproach of Christ as a greater treasure than all the riches of Egypt, you know he had the right perspective because Egypt was like this spectacular display of earthly glory. And he just said, even the reproach of Christ is better than that. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that says it all right there. Whatever we may be going through right now, however discouraged we may feel, however overlooked or underappreciated or weary we may feel right now, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in Christ. So in conclusion, even if we go through suffering, discouragement, or rejection in our service to the King, as we're pouring out, if if those things don't seem to be making any real difference, let us not grow weary. As I've said in other messages, there is no step of obedience we could ever take for Jesus that is ever going to be wasted, even if we don't see the, the result of it right away. Because God's word will not return void. The suffering we may experience now is not even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us in in eternity. So let's not become discouraged. Jesus Christ is our sure reward. He is our exceedingly great reward. And let's never forget, we are not home yet. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these amazing promises of the glory that awaits us in eternity that you value uh, these steps of obedience, this, this desire that we have to honor you and serve you, and even when we can't see the fruit of our labor, even when moments of discouragement and weariness come, Lord, you desire to welcome us into eternity and to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I pray that you would enable us to keep our eyes on that heavenly reward, which is you, and that we would remember that this world is not our home and that we would live for something far better, That we would have an eternal perspective as we uh, seek to serve you on this earth in jesus name amen daily thunder is a listener supported production of ellersley discipleship training at ellersley we are laboring to rouse the church of jesus christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted christians for such a time as this daily thunder episodes are released every day monday through friday from our campus in windsor colorado And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.